Um, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 this morning. And as I flip there, I want to let you know something, and it's this, that we've got a problem. If you came with someone this morning, maybe nudge them. This is going to be the best part of the sermon, okay? Nudge them and say, you've got a problem. Find someone around you, say, you've got a problem. Isn't it? Church is fun, eh? It's fun. Well, we, are, we do have a problem, and the problem is the result of this cultural and really personal experiment that humankind has been on for thousands of years. And the problem is, is that we're experimenting with this idea, and the idea is this, that we can find satisfaction in life when we get as many things as possible for our pleasure. I think the problem is summarized pretty well by the story of Mr. and Mrs. Thing. Can I tell you about Mr. and Mrs. Thing this morning? Mr. and Mrs. Thing are a very pleasant and successful couple. At least that's the verdict of most people who tend to measure success with a thingometer. When the thingometer is put to work in the life of Mr. and Mrs. Thing, the result is startling. There is Mr. Thing, sitting down on a luxurious and very expensive thing, almost hidden by a large number of other things, things to sit on, things to sit at, things to cook on, things to eat from, all shiny and new, things, 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 things to clean with and things to wash with, and things to clean and things to wash, things to amuse and things to give pleasure, things to watch and things to play, things for the long, hot summer, things for the short, cold winter, things for the big thing in which they live in, things for the garden and things for the deck and things for the kitchen and things for the bedroom, things on four wheels and things on two wheels and things to put on top of the four wheels and things to pull behind the four wheels and things to add to the interior of the thing on four wheels. Can you tell I read a lot of Dr. Seuss with my kids? Things, things, things. And there in the middle are Mr. and Mrs. Thing, smiling and pleased as punch with things, thinking of more things to add to things, secure in their castle of things. You see, you and I can be very much like Mr. and Mrs. Thing. And we can try to work out this idea in our life that we'll find meaning and we'll find satisfaction if we can just have one more thing. We live our lives searching for satisfaction, believing that we will finally find it when we find that one last thing. Answer this question for yourself right now. If I were just to have blank, then I would be satisfied. Well, the writer of Ecclesiastes whether it's Solomon or himself, King Solomon, or someone writing from the perspective of King Solomon. The writer of Ecclesiastes wants to demolish this idea for us. He wants to search for satisfaction in things and explode this idea that if I were just to have one more thing, I would be satisfied. This morning, we're going to learn from Solomon what happens when we pursue satisfaction in the things of earth? And the first, first thing I want you to see in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is that when I search for satisfaction in things, I'll experience the empty pleasures of play. Now this morning we joined Solomon on this search, and really this, there's no one better to lead us on this quest. If there's anybody who could really test this idea that we can find satisfaction in the things of earth, then it was Solomon himself. Solomon was the man in his time who would be on the front of Time magazine 
ancient Near Eastern edition, as the richest man alive year after year, King Solomon had it all. He had at his disposal, disposal unimaginable resources. And so what he's doing in Ecclesiastes 2 is, as the man who's most fit to answer this question for us, he's searching for the answer. And so he says in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with every pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And Solomon's saying this, I'm going to acquire every possible thing. I'm going to use every possible thing, and I'm going to see if at the end of this experiment, I'm satisfied. And it's as though there's a conveyor belt in front of King Solomon, and every possible thing of earth is passing by him, and he's picking it up, and he's squeezing as much pleasure out of each thing as possible to ask himself if he can find satisfaction from it. But in the end, after unlimited indulgence, he makes this declaration in verse 1, but behold... This also was vanity. See, what Solomon's saying is he's tried to squeeze every ounce of pleasure out of every possible thing, but it still left him empty. The outcome of the test had been done, and the outcome was this, that experiencing pleasure in the things of earth is an empty pursuit. And so the first pleasure that Solomon tries to experience satisfaction from is the pleasures of play. And so look what he says in the end of verse 3. At the end of verse 3, he says he was on the search for satisfaction until I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. And so Solomon would allow all the things of earth to entertain him. Solomon would see what pleasure he could find in the activities that humans commit themselves to, in the pleasures of play. He would find out if there's any value in entertainment. And so look what he writes in verse 2. He says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? Solomon first looks to pleasure that's associated with comedy. And if he says, if I could just laugh more, if I can just have more happy times where I'm laughing my head off, then I will find true satisfaction. But his declaration in the end is this, that it is mad. Of pleasure, he says, what use is it? Now, when Solomon says mad, he's not using this in like a slang term where your kids, you know, they might say that, that's mad sick. He's using this to say that laughter is in the context that he was finding it morally perverse. And we experience this with laughter, don't we? We at times will laugh at things that are an abomination to God. We will find funny the things that should be embarrassing. Some of us use laughter as a tool for passive aggression. And so we hide truths about ways that we're disgruntled in the world behind sarcasm. Solomon says of this pleasure, what use is it? Even though scripture says laughter can be a gift from God, laughter won't remain, laughter fades. Even in the next chapter, in Ecclesiastes chapter three, that well-known chapter, Solomon says that there's a time for laughing but the sound of laughter quickly fades and is overtaken by the sound of weeping. See, laughter and the search for pleasure in it is a useless pursuit, and Solomon discovers that this laughter, it can't help him escape from reality. 
And so church, you need to know you can put on the Netflix special, you can put on the comedy show, and you can laugh, and for a moment you can laugh at the oddities of our world, you can laugh at the funny things in the world, but very quickly that show will end, the laughter will fade, and instead of laughing at the world, we'll be languishing under the world again. Not only does the search for satisfaction and laughter provide an empty result, Solomon says, too, that the search for satisfaction in wine leads to emptiness. And so he says, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with, my, with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom. Now in the search for satisfaction, Solomon turns to alcohol. And he thinks, perhaps drink can satisfy me. Now by saying that alcohol is an empty pleasure, we're not talking about alcohol in terms of excessive drinking. I think that we probably don't need the Bible to tell us that nobody's going to the person who's hugging the toilet, puking their guts out because they drank so much last night and saying, you found satisfaction in life. No one's tapping the drunk stumbling down the alleyway on a Friday night and saying, hey, could you tell me the meaning of life? Saul's not talk- Solomon's not talking about excessive drinking here. Otherwise, he wouldn't be able to say that his heart was guiding him with wisdom. What Solomon is doing is he's using wine in a variety of different ways to help him in his search for satisfaction. And so maybe after a long day, after Solomon's hundreds of concubines had just been nagging him, minute after minute, Solomon would walk into the kitchen and yell, it's wine o'clock, and pour himself a glass of wine. Maybe after the anxiety was filling his heart, that came along with running a kingdom, he would put down his coffee mug, and on his coffee mug he would read, coffee keeps me going until it's acceptable to drink wine. And he would turn to wine. See, Solomon, he had tried every kind of alcohol, every kind of way, and at every kind of time to see if it could satisfy. In fact, this is the very reason that we may run to drink, to try and find a frame of mind where life feels good. And so maybe for you, it's not that you're a drunkard, but maybe you find yourself turning to alcohol, you find yourself turning to wine to try to numb yourself to the emptiness and the pain of the world so that you can experience some satisfaction. And so I wonder if there may be a warning here. Maybe after a long days with the kids, and they've done nothing but get on your nerves every minute of the day, you've slipped into a practice of trying to get pleasure from alcohol. Maybe this is the way after a long week of stressful work that you unwind. Maybe this is the only way that you can find romance in your marriage is when you're drinking. You're using alcohol so that you're able to find satisfaction in this world. Another way that you might use alcohol is to forget the pain of the world. And so maybe you might turn to drink because you're afraid of something. Maybe it's crushing debt or poor performance reviews at work. You're turning to alcohol and it's revealing this bigger identity issue in your life that maybe that you don't think people want to be around you unless you're a little bit drunk. See, laughter and alcohol and buying into the temptation that we can find pleasure in them is an empty pursuit. But this isn't the only thing. There are multitudes of ways that we find, try to find pleasure in play. And so many of us, maybe we're not ser- searching for satisfaction in laughter and in alcohol, but many of us will turn to entertainment. 
And so in order to find satisfaction, we have to turn on Netflix. And what does Netflix do? You watch one show, and then you have seven milliseconds after that show to hit cancel, or else you're watching the other show. And Netflix is preaching this message to you that just one more show, just watch one more, and you'll finally find satisfaction. And so finally, you turn off Netflix, and you open up Instagram, you open up TikTok, you open up Facebook, and you start scrolling. And what do you find? An endless feed of posts all screaming. If you just scroll one more time, you'll find satisfaction. And so you put your phone down, and you open up YouTube, and you get that little uh, search it tells you what you want to watch. And because your kids watched a video of puppies three years ago, now you get, to, you get recommended 10 hours of puppies. See, what the entertainment industry is feeding us and what we are eating up is this idea that if we just watch one more video, if we just consume one more thing, then we'll finally be happy. Maybe these things leave us empty, and so we turn to video games. Video games, they promise pleasure if you just beat one more level. You just play one more game. The promise is to satisfy this itch that cannot be satisfied otherwise, and video game companies know this. So did you know that the slogan for PlayStation, one of the most popular gaming consoles there is, the slogan for PlayStation is greatness awaits. And we hear that, and we don't scratch our head and say, wait a minute, greatness doesn't await for me in my mother's basement when I'm pretending to be Spider-Man. Greatness awaits me somewhere else. And yet this is the message, that you can find satisfaction in these things. Some of us, we're more sophisticated than that. And we don't waste our time with TV and social media and video games because we're too busy. But we do dream of a life when we are freed from responsibility and able to partake in these things. And deep down, we believe that we might be, be able to find satisfaction in the pleasures of play. But God's stopping us in our tracks this morning to tell us that they, it's an empty pursuit. You cannot find satisfaction in the pleasures of play. And so Solomon, he keeps on working this experiment. And the next thing that he teaches us is that if we believe that we'll only have one more, if we, that we only need one more, if we believe that we can find satisfaction in things, then we'll experience the empty pursuit of property. And so in verses four to six, Solomon really shifts his experiment here. He's tried to find pleasure in play. Now he'll pursue property and see if he can find any pleasure in it. And so look what he says in verse four. He says, I made myself great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I want you to notice something about Solomon, that Solomon wasn't just enjoying things of the earth. Solomon was enjoying the best things of the earth. And so he says here, I made great works. Solomon was not the millionaire who was driving a Toyota Camry. Solomon was living the life of the rich and famous. He was accumulating for himself the best homes. The homes that he built, they would have had the same beauty and design genius of the royal palace that he had built in 1 Kings chapter 7. It tells us it took him 10 years to finish. Solomon was meticulous, masterfully planning the most lavish gardens with abundant Fruit, beautiful flowers, vineyards everywhere, everything designed for his pleasure. And what Solomon wants us to understand this morning is that even if we have the best things, we cannot find satisfaction in them. 
And so isn't it true that you open up the new iPhone and you discover the very next day that a newer, better one's coming out? Isn't it depressing how quickly that kitchen that you updated gets outdated? One minute you think that HGTV is going to be coming to put you on the front cover of their magazine. The next minute you feel like you might be on the show, Home's Gone Wrong. (laughs) See, we can laugh about these things, but it's all too common for us to place our hope in better things. And so maybe the most joy, if we're honest with ourselves, the most joy that we've experienced recently is the joy of receiving a new phone or getting a better thing. Maybe the most hope we have felt is thinking about our home and maybe moving or renovating so that we could have a better home. Or maybe some of us, we feel some contentment now, but that contentment is fueled by this belief we have in ourselves that someday we're going to have better things. Someday we're going to drive that nicer car. Someday we're going to live in that bigger home. Yet answer me this question. Why is it statistically true that the rich aren't universally happy. How come it seems that most of the time those who have the best thing, if anything, are more depressed and stressed and anxious? It's because this, even the best things cannot satisfy. Now look at the magnitude of Solomon's creation. It's emphasized that he has everything in plural. He just doesn't, he doesn't have one of anything. Look what he has. Houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, all kinds of fruit trees, pools. He had great homes everywhere. And so I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, I mean, Solomon had homes, but he didn't have a home in Toronto. He didn't have a home on the bridal path. If he had had a home here, then he would have found satisfaction. But Solomon, he had houses everywhere. And his declaration is still this, that it's an empty pursuit. There's no satisfaction in it. If you place your hope for pleasure in a home, you will be sorely disappointed by the pursuit. So we get a sense in this text that Solomon is rebuilding a paradise that is much like the paradise that Adam and Eve were created to live in. We get a hint of that when he says that he had all kinds of fruit trees. This is to take our minds back to the garden. What Solomon's trying to do is recreate this garden where Pleasure is everything. Everything is there for satisfaction. And yet there's one distinct difference. There's no tree that you're not allowed to eat from. Solomon would walk through these gardens, not public parks, not public uh, gardens or homes. These were private garden paradises built for his pleasure. Everything to serve his purposes. And so notice even in the text, the self-centered language of Solomon. And when, listen to this. When I read verses 4 to 6, he says, I built great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. See, Solomon had built a paradise of great houses that were many in number and perfectly suited to serve him. And still his declaration is this, that it was vanity, that it was empty, that it was meaningless. And so how much more foolish is it for us to think that being incredibly less wealthy than Solomon 
we could finally build a property that could satisfy. We could finally find satisfaction in the things of earth. Solomon shows us that if you had all that you could possibly dream of, all that you could possibly imagine, you still would find no satisfaction in it. But Solomon doesn't end there. He also wants to teach us in Ecclesiastes 2 that when we pursue things, we'll experience the empty promise of possessions. We'll experience the empty promise of possessions. The last thing that Solomon wants to ask is this, can the promise of possessions bring satisfaction? And so in verse 7, he says this, I bought male and female slaves and slaves who were born in my house. Now, as Solomon's talking about slavery here, we need to understand that the type of slavery that, that he's talking about right here isn't the type of slavery that we often think of, the slavery that happened in the past hundreds of years. While this was slavery, it was much closer to an employee-employer relationship. And there were many cultural and social benefits in slavery. Now, what Solomon is saying here, though, is that he had countless servants who would wait on him hand and foot. If he had a task to be done, he, didn't, he could hand it off to anyone he wanted to. He had a number of servants who were just waiting to do any of his bidding. Some of us are like, wow, if you can't find satisfaction here, you can't find satisfaction anywhere. Imagine there's just a lineup of servants following in your house. You, clean the toilet. They go off to clean the toilet. If there's no satisfaction here, where can there be satisfaction? Now, we don't do the same thing, thankfully. We don't have servants following us in our house doing that, most of us. But we, we have bought into this cultural idea that if we're freed from the labor of work, the more control we can have over our schedule, the more happy we'll be. And so in the 1970s, two psychologists, whose names were Edward D.C. and Richard Ryan, they set out to answer this question that we're asking today. They said, how can you be happy in life? And part of the answer that they came to was that you could be happy in life when you attained autonomy. If you had complete control over your life, you would finally find satisfaction. And in many of our hearts, we agree with this because this is the message that we've been peddled. That if you just escape the nine to five, if you're just free to take vacation whenever you want, if you just have other people working under you, doing all your work, then you will find satisfaction. Well, Solomon's here to test the claim that autonomy and control come from money and possessions that lead to happiness. And this is the result, again, empty promise. More control won't satisfy you. Being freed from hard work will not satisfy you. See, next we see that Solomon, he had all the possessions that show, would show the world he was rich. Look what it says. He says, I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any before me in Jerusalem. And if these herds, of, herds and flocks were not enough, he had all the money in the world to buy whatever he needed. So he also says, I, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Solomon had committed himself to acquiring as much money as possible. I think his attitude was probably a lot like John D. Rockefeller's was, who, when asked by a journalist how much money is enough, he responded, just a little bit more. And Solomon was acquiring as much money as he could. And it reminds each of us 
that as we commit to this search for satisfaction in the things of earth, that the more we have, in reality, the more we want. That when we get the thing we think would satisfy us, we get there and realize that it wasn't that thing, it's the next thing. Even Benjamin Franklin would would say this. He said, money never made a man happy yet, nor will it. There is nothing in its nature to produce happiness. The more a man has, the more he wants. Instead of its filling a vacuum, it makes one. It satisfies one want. It doubles and triples that want another way. And each of us know this to be true about the possessions that we have. We know that our current possessions aren't providing us happiness. But our belief is that our future possessions will. I remember a time when, in my family, I could not wait to be a two-car family. We had one car, and then when you have a kid, that starts to get really difficult. And so I had this dream of the day that I'd become a two-car family. And in my mind, as the dream played, music was playing, and butterflies were flying around, and rabbits were jumping. And it was this amazing feeling. Life will be complete when, I get a two, when I'm a two-car family. And so the day arrived, I got a 2004 Honda Civic. And I was so happy. I can go anywhere I want. I have complete control. Now, in the span of three days, you're going to think I'm making this up for a great preacher illustration, but I'm not making this up. In the span of three days, my friend wanted to drive the car, and so I said, hey, you drive. Everybody wants to drive a car like this. And so he drove my 2004 Honda Civic, and I went around to the passenger door. I went to open up the door, and the handle ripped off in my hand. We were driving on the highway that very same day. On the highway, my windshield wiper flies off. That same week, you would find me, uh, and this would happen for multiple months after this, you would find me in the church parking lot with booster cables connected from my car to another car, boosting my car so that I could go anywhere. Anywhere I wanted to go, it needed a boost. And I quickly realized that the thing I thought would satisfy didn't totally satisfy. See, things, they can't satisfy us. The next thing Solomon wants us to know will not satisfy you. It'll only make you hungrier for the next thing. Not only that, possessions won't satisfy me. Solomon wants us to know that people won't satisfy me. And so he says, he says, I gathered for myself singers, both male and female. Solomon had people around him serving his every need, and he had singers around him singing to him and entertaining to him. Now, maybe your idea of pleasure is not having people follow you all day, singing to you and serenading you. Maybe that's your idea of creepy. But this does point to something that can be a reality in our life that many of us believe that we can find satisfaction in another person. But often what that leads to, we've experienced this, is that when we place our hope for satisfaction in a person, it only leads to our hurt. The tendency of the human heart is to believe that other people can satisfy you. And so whether it's a spouse or a friend or an employer, the belief is that this person can provide me the joy that I need. And so I wonder if maybe you're here and you've placed your hope for a satisfaction in another person. And you need to hear this this morning, that people will always let you down. That's why when we renamed our church a few years ago, I suggested that we have like a subtitle to our church. And so I thought Redemption Church Durham is great, but I thought it would be great to add a subtitle, you'll get hurt here too. (laughs) 
Because the reality is, if we get hundreds of people in the same building, trying to do life together as a family, the reality is there's going to be a lot of hurt. And if there's not a constant stream of forgiveness flowing in this church, then relationships, they just can't happen. Just think about for a moment. Like, we have hundreds of people. You have hundreds of people in this church. We have hundreds of people in my church. Think about your marriage for a moment. When one person and another person, a man and a woman, stand on the altar and say, I do. Think about how much pain those people will cause each other. In that moment, you don't think about it. But husbands, you know how many words you've said that have hurt your wife? Wives, you know how many times you have hurt your husband. And if there's not a constant stream of forgiveness in that relationship, it just doesn't work. And Solomon wants us to know that people, they cannot satisfy you. It's an empty promise. Solomon shows us the last place he tests to get pleasure. He says that he got, at the end of verse 8, he says he got many concubines, the delights of the sons of men. Solomon had more sexual partners than any person could imagine. 1 Kings 11.3 gives us the raw data. He had 700 wives and princesses and more than 300 concubines. And Solomon, more than anybody, knew that erotic pleasure could not satisfy. This is why when Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs, in Proverbs 1-9, he writes a parenting manual. And of those nine chapters, three he dedicates to the dangers of sexual immorality. Because the danger of sexual immorality was just as real for Solomon and his children as it is today. Even though it was harder for Solomon, see, if Solomon wanted to seek uh, sexual intimacy outside of the bounds of what Scripture had given to him, he would have to leave his room to go and find a concubine. He would have to leave his room to be sexually immoral. But now, in a tiny rectangle in your hand, You have access to thousands more sexual partners than Solomon could ever dream of. And there is a billion-dollar porn industry that is testing this theory that true satisfaction can be found in sexual intimacy. And Solomon's here to say that it is an empty pursuit that you cannot find satisfaction in it. Like just like other, every other pursuit, it will just lead you to wanting more and more and it will never fill you up. It will just empty you completely. Now Solomon's done with his test and he's ready to conclude his findings. And so look what he says in verses nine to 11. He says, so I became great and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The test is complete. The experiment is done. And what is Solomon's declaration? It was meaningless. It was a waste of time. I could not squeeze an ounce of lasting satisfaction out of these things. See, if you're searching for satisfaction in the things of earth, you just cannot accomplish it. The search for satisfaction in the things of earth, it's an exhausting search. 
And someday, just like Solomon would be reminded by this search, we too will realize that at the end of our lives, these things that we've accumulated, they just become dust. You've heard it said before that you can't bring a U-Haul to the grave. And this, what this passage really teaches us is that the worldview of materialism is empty. You can't find satisfaction by accumulating for yourself as many things as you can possibly imagine. But this text does leave us with this question. How can I find satisfaction in the things of earth? How am I to relate to the things of earth? See, the reality is is that some people will read something like this, and instead of pursuing materialism, they'll decide to pursue minimalism or escapism. And that's the idea, that's the worldview, that if I just don't have any things, if I just sell all my things, then I'll finally be happy. That can't be right, because Paul is able to write to Timothy. He says this, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. See, there's got to be a way for us to rightly enjoy the things of earth. And Solomon gets the answer in verse 24. Look what he says in verse 24 of chapter 2. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat and who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge. And listen to this church, joy. Joy. What Solomon is ultimately teaching us this morning is this, that we can enjoy the things of earth when we're able to look through them to the goodness of the giver who gave them to us. Solomon says that the path to enjoying the things of earth is recognizing that they are a gift from the good giver. And so Augustine writes this. I think this is so helpful. I think this may come up on the screen. It may not. It says this, this is how our souls climb out of their weariness toward you and cease to lean on the things you created. We pass through them to you, Lord God, who created them in a marvelous way. See, once you know the giver of good gifts, you are freed then to enjoy those gifts. But the only way you can truly know God is if he reveals himself to you. And this is the good news of the gospel, that we don't have to go around without a God who has revealed himself to us, that God has very plainly revealed himself to us in his son, Jesus Christ. So that the writer of Hebrews is able to write this long ago at many times, and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by his prophets, Prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. See, Jesus came to this earth to reveal the Father to you so that you could know God, so that you could ultimately find joy in this world. The good news for sinners is this that through Jesus, you can have complete satisfaction. Jesus lived to provide for you the righteousness that you needed to live with God. He died to pay for the sins that you needed to pay for in order to be in relationship with the Father. In every way, Jesus has opened the floodgates to all sinners, calling them to have access to God through the cross. 
And so you may be here and maybe you're on the same search right now in your life that Solomon has been on. And you're testing what Solomon has been testing. You're trying to find satisfaction. You're trying to find joy. And you're, so you're trying to get more. You're working hard to build up things for your life, but you're just finding that you can never be satisfied. You can never find joy. Listen, in God's grace, he is pursuing you. He has brought you to this moment to show you the foolishness of your pursuit, to show you the folly of thinking that things could satisfy you and to call you. So that Jesus says in Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 2, listen to these words, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for what that for what, and sorry, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich foods. This is what Jesus invites you to today, if you will just place your faith in Him. And for the believer, He invites us to the same thing: to delight ourselves in rich food and relationship with Him. And so, once you know God, once you follow God. The things of this earth, what they become really is vehicles for the glory of God. Instead of looking to the things of earth, asking what pleasure can you get from them, you're seeing the gifts that God has given you in the things of earth, and you're seeing the glory of God as the creator. The things of the earth, they declare the greatness of who God is so that you can actually enjoy the things of the earth because you're seeing through them to the goodness of who God is. So that the psalmist says in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above his handiwork. And the question is for you, as you live among the things of earth, will you see the glory of God in them or will you push God out of the picture and try to delight in those things without God? I love what Jonathan Edwards writes regarding this. He says, The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends, or we could add to this list all the other things of earth are but shadows, and God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the ocean. See, what the things of earth are leading you to is a greater God, a more glorious God than anything you could ever imagine. Once you know God through Christ, you look through the things of earth to see the glory of God, and you're actually able to experience the things of earth with great pleasure because you are experiencing God. What Solomon does for us this morning is actually unleash our potential to be able to experience joy in the things of earth. He shows us the vanity of pursuing joy through materialism or the folly of escapism and minimalism, and he unlocks the pleasure that we can find in play. He shows us how to have true joy in our property, how to be satisfied and content with the possessions we have. Solomon shows us that it's okay to enjoy the things of earth as they fill our heart with delight with who God is.
is the glorious giver of good gifts, the greatest being Jesus Christ himself.